I think that all of us have these very deep feelings of tenderness and sadness. If you don't discuss it, just eats away, eats away, eats away at you. I never talked about it with anybody. The greater damage done to me was keeping the secret. If I can be vulnerable, that'll help other people be vulnerable. And it doesn't work for me to be silent. It makes me sick, literally, physically. I can't believe I'm going to tell you this story, but I'm going to tell you this story. If I could have known that you and I were alike, I would have had so much more hope. You realized you are not the only one. I think you can feel so supported just by knowing that you're not alone. From WMPG, I'm Dr. Ann Hallward, a psychiatrist in Portland, Maine, and this is Safe Space Radio the show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we talked about them more. This season, we're revisiting some of our best shows from the past eight years. Today's interview from 2013 is with Episcopal priest Carl Russell, talking about his experience of childhood sexual abuse by the priest at the church his family attended. Carl told no one what had happened for decades, but after hearing a story on the radio about sexual abuse in the Catholic Church, he experienced a powerful resurfacing of memory and emotion that convinced him to tell his story, first to his wife and then to the world, by writing a book called No Telling Aloud, Keeping Secrets That Hurt. At 72 years old, he decided to finally seek justice by pressing charges against his abuser. It goes without saying that the topic of today's show is delicate. You might think that as a psychiatrist who does a show about difficult subjects that I would find it easy to broach a topic like this, but it never is. In this interview, I was especially concerned about whether to bring up the sensitive subject of whether he experienced some pleasure from the abuse. It's not even easy to say it now. It feels so uncomfortable. But I know that this is often at the heart of the confusion and shame that survivors struggle with. And so I felt that not asking about it would only perpetuate the silencing that makes stigmatized experiences even harder to bear. I hoped that Carl would be able to be helpful in explaining how he made sense of that. But nonetheless, it felt potentially fraught with the risk of shaming him. As you'll hear, I didn't need to worry. Carl was committed in his decision to tell this story fully and to feel the power that he reclaimed in so doing. Here's my conversation with Episcopal priest Carl Russell. Welcome to Safe Space, Carl. Thank you very much, Dr. Ann. I'd like to start by having you kind of put the story in context, because sexual abuse by a priest, I think, is particularly influenced by how much spiritual authority and power the person has by virtue of their office. And I'd love to have you tell me a little bit about the role that this man played in your family as a child before the abuse even started that sort of set the stage for everything that followed? Mm-hmm. Well, that, that's the thing. The stage was being set when I was about seven. Um, my parents had been Congregationalists, and they had discovered the Episcopal Church because of my brother who went to this church because of the scout troop. And... Um, my mother's mother was dying, my, my nana, and my brother invited this priest to come into our home while we were still Congregationalists, but to pray with, with my grandmother. It was a very impressive moment. We had never known anything liturgical. We had never known anything about the prayers that were prescribed 
in the Book of Common Prayer. And so when he came and he had those things to use, uh, it made a huge impact on us. Um, he anointed her with oil. Um, he laid his hands on her. He uh, and I watched this, and I thought, "This is this is amazing." And this is I, holy. Oh I'm yeah, holy. very holy. And he had you know purple purple stole on to do uh, to do the anointing. Um, so, but but it was not just that. I was very impressed by that myself at age seven. In fact, it's one of the reasons why I decided I wanted to be a priest. I really wanted to be like him at that point. And um, and then I watched what my mother and father did in response to this, and they were blown away by this man. And then when my nana died, my mother went into a depression, and he came and was very, very effective, basically for all of us, because we'd sort of lost my mother in the process. I mean, she was so exhausted and so depressed that she was like a different person. I, I talk in the book about... She was like the architect of our home, but we lost her. And and he really was effective in bringing her back into herself. So he began to play a very important role in our family. So he was like a hero. Oh, right? he was a hero indeed. And he started coming to the house on a regular basis. He, he ate at least one meal a week with us. Uh, he spent time in the living room with us. I watched my mother and father defer to him. Uh, there's one incident in the book where my mother was making Hamburg on a Friday, and my father came home and had just gotten into this whole Catholic piece of can't have meat on Friday. So I heard my father telling my mother, we can't feed the family this hamburger. And he went to the telephone in front of me and called this priest to ask his permission to feed his family. You know, the, the effect of me on me was, was unbelievable. Uh, All right, so he had enormous authority. Your father would defer to him, uh, you know, versus his wife on what you could yeah. eat for supper, even though yeah. that supper was already cooked. Absolutely. And so the picture I got was that this man was like a god in our family. He was. And so when... I, I, I think this is how it all began, and I was only seven. I think he... Uh, personally, I think he he already had had targeted me, but he was very careful, very slow. It was probably another year before anything happened. The first thing I I talk about it began with a kiss, and it began with a kiss when I was very sick. They called him uh, to do what they, he had done for my grandmother. They trusted him implicitly, so he came upstairs. I was in my bedroom alone. And uh, he prayed with me, but then he bent over and kissed me, and he kissed me on the lips. That was the first kind of unusual feeling that I had. Um, but I did not feel then or any time until I was 50 years old that I could ever tell anybody even that. But then it got much more elaborate, much more <laughs> involved uh, as I and this took this went on for six years, you know. So they call they call this grooming, you know, in the field yes. where, where um, somebody who abuses children gradually establishes trust, establishes yeah. a, a so-called special relationship. Yeah. So when does it feel to you, in some ways, that it moved from that kind of cultivating that specialness toward 
toward actual abuse? Well, there's one thing I, I would I would I would add to this, and that is that I think he not only groomed me, but more importantly, he groomed my family. Yes, he groomed my mother and father, and he had them in a place of complete confidence. And that, plus, he had also made uh, he had also made moves on at least one of my brothers, uh, whose testimony is in the book. Um, he didn't do much with my brother, nothing like he did with me. But he knew that my brother didn't tell, so I think he knew he was safe. And then, so then I was appointed an acolyte, and that's when the more, you know, the, the more difficult stuff began. And because partly because being an acolyte meant you would meet him alone early right. in the morning before right. the service. That's right. The two of you would be getting on your mm-hmm. re- your vestments That's together yep. in a very private space. Very private. You also, in the book, you write about instances where he would call your home and ask you to come over alone to yes. help him with certain errands. Yes. And he, 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 uh, one of the times was he called and said to my father that we need, he needed help to put out the diocesan magazine that he was the editor of, and could I come over and help him? And, and I, I, I told my father I didn't want to go, uh, but my father said, oh, yeah, we help out. You know, he was very, he was so compliant. And so he took me over and dropped me off. I found that part of the book almost unbearable to read because here you are trying to say to your father, no, mm-hmm. I don't want to go. Mm-hmm. Your father basically makes you go, mm-hmm. puts you in the car, drives you, and deposits you, completely trusting, mm-hmm. into this man's home. And you describe him meeting you there in his silk bathrobe at right. the door. Yep. Yep. And that's why I've never been able to... See, that. that's what I mean by this little this underlying thing that governs you because my wife gave me a silk bathrobe once for Christmas and I reamed her out about spending so much money on this in front of my children and I put it aside and said I don't like bathrobes anyway had no idea why I was doing that and I never used it I think as a parent I found that story particularly chilling because I think about times that you know your child protests having to do lots of things in life right go to practices yeah. or do yeah. homework and yeah. as a parent you yeah. make them do certain things and I that I just thought oh, almost with a growing sense of horror I listened to that story yeah. about your father delivering you yeah, in some ways was... to the first incident that was really explicitly sexual I mean, this took place over a very long period of time. He was very patient, uh, and the move was made very gradually, and it got more and more explicit. And I, I again, I didn't think that I could tell anybody about this. He kept telling me that I that it was a good thing um, that we were doing what men and boys do. Um, the only time I ever asked him is, "Is this am I being good or not?" Because I used to ask my mother all the time, was I a good boy or a bad boy when I was my five or six years old? That, then that mattered to me. And I, I had the feeling, and I think this is the struggle for people who have been sexually abused. I had the feeling that the, way down deep that this wasn't a good thing. But he kept telling me that it was a good thing and that I was special and how much he loved me. And, um, and so I felt very loved. So, and part of what I'm hearing that this all unfolded in the context where you weren't 
able to talk about it at all. So here you were having this moral dilemma inside yourself. Is this good or is this bad? Some internal part of you was registering, this doesn't feel quite right. But the authority figure that you're with, who's sort of invested in with the power of a god, practically, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is telling you repeatedly how good it is, how right it is. Yep. And your family, I mean, w did you get a puberty talk? Was your family talking about sexuality at that point? Not really, no. So no. It, this occurs in sort of the vacuum of silence. That's right, exactly. And the silence is protected by shame, pretty much. I mean... I don't know as a child, at that age if I knew what shame was, but I, I knew this was secret, and I and he kept saying no one must ever know what we do here, so that was like a mantra, and if you ever tell anybody something bad's going to happen to you, did he you say know, that he yeah. threatened you? Oh yeah, um, and you know no one no one will understand. This is special, you know. So and. And I, you know, I, I to this day look back and think, how did this go on for six years? You know, what what was wrong with me? You know, at one point, I, I began to think that I was the one doing the seducing. I mean, that there was something about me that that was making him do this. Yes. And it's, it, it, but it, but it's very subtle. You know, it's not the kind of thing that's at the front of your frontal lobe. It's sort of down deep somewhere. And uh, and I know he, I know that he manipulated that, and that he took advantage of that. You know, I think every survivor of sexual abuse that I have ever spoken with has felt that at some way. How was it my fault? Yeah. It must have been something about me. Yeah. yeah, which is such an insidious part of the legacy right. of it. And his and and his fetish was phallic. It was a phallic fetish. And so I began to I began to think that that part of me was bad, um, and I wanted to not have that. I, you know, I, w I wanted that to go away. Um, it, it's so complex, you know, and there's nobody to talk to. And so I think a child, at least I as a child, drew all kinds of wrong conclusions. You know, I didn't have the I didn't have the equipment emotionally or m mentally to to make good sense out of this. I made bad sense out of it. I made sense out of it, but I didn't make good. Well, sense. Well, I mean, to to just be fair for a moment, it doesn't make any sense what he was doing. No. To you. No. And yet, of course, you tried to make meaning of it because we all that's, do. That's right. But it's so poignant because there you were, twelve years old, you know, entering puberty, mm -hmm. and. And learning to hate part of your own body. Mm -hmm. yep. It's a hard way to proceed. And, and the power of this, I, you know, I was struck reading your book that even in your marriage, that it, it, took, it took listening to a story on the radio. Yeah. And so tell me that story, if you would, about how you really decided to break this silence. Well, it kind of broke itself. <laughs> I, uh, in the book, I refer to it as an eruption because uh, I had it came completely out of the blue. I was preparing supper, and um, and I was peeling potatoes, looking down in the field at our son's horse. I had, I guess it was WBUR that I was listening to down there, and they did a section uh, on um, 
the breaking news of the Archdiocese of Boston and the sexual abuse of children. And and the most in, in, interesting thing is there were no children being interviewed, but I began to hear a child weeping. And and I kind of got focused on this weeping child and then I realized that I was weeping, that it was that I was weeping. I I lost track of the program and this weeping child began to get my attention and then I was sobbing. I was leaning on the sink looking out at the horse and I lost track of everything. And then I heard my wife come in and my son was in the other room welcoming her and then she came over and and kissed me on the neck and said um what's happening and i i couldn't talk and so she took me into the living room we sat down in the living room and that's the point i i told her there's much more about me that you don't know and um not everything didn't come back at once. It was just that I I was aware again of what I had been stuffing, and that there was a lot more to it. I couldn't have told her then all, what it was, but I did tell her that, and she put her arms around me and said, "Go ahead and cry. We'll get through this. We'll get through this." And that's when I started for the first time to say. But you don't know what I have to tell you. And when I when I did that, I I was looking at her and thinking, this this could ruin this could ruin our relationship. But I but I she had given me enough uh, enough encouragement, so I thought I'm safe. So I began to tell her, and then little by little, this began to come up. And uh, but it took took years before I was able to really begin to identify. Particulars. I had pretty much, I had pretty much stuffed most of what I knew about this. I think one of the things that people often don't understand about childhood sexual abuse is that, in fact, it does take years yeah. to get clear about it and mm-hmm. to be able to uh, speak about it. And not only that, but a lot of those years, in my case, I wasn't even aware of it. I had. I just I put it on a shelf somewhere. It wasn't until that began to come up, and I think I was forty six years old or something like that. Uh, and and then I didn't get it, didn't deal with it for years. Um, right. So, and I think this, in many ways, can be the norm, you know. And I think sometimes people feel very suspicious about stories that come out so many decades later. Yeah. But I think it makes sense when something happens to you, and you're so young, and it's so yeah. hard to make sense of, and you're, there's so much threat. Yeah. Around telling it, absolutely, so much shame. absolutely, and I think the 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 fact that they the main anyway waives the statute of limitations on this is really important because it can take a long time. Um, so when you say that, what do you mean? What has Maine done? I don't know. Well, uh, Maine, uh, I believe I'm correct. Uh, Maine, in other words, there's no statute of limitations on bringing a charge against somebody if you finally realized what's happened, and I did that. I, I sued my abuser. So let's talk about that. When when did you do that, and what made you decide to sue him? I did that when I was 72 years old. He was 95. And um, 
And it was my brother who convinced me, you have got to say no if you're ever going to get healthy. You've got to, you've got to, he said, I, I said, I'm too afraid to do that. You know, I had a lot of fear even at that age. And uh, he said, well, I think the only way you're ever going to deal with this is you're going to have to go to court. So That's I, what he meant by saying no. Yeah. And so I called a personal injury lawyer who helped me to frame my no, and and we sued. And I did get a settlement. Um, there's another whole story that goes with that because the settlement caused me all kinds of problems. Uh, with I had struggled with the feeling that that was somehow some sort of prostitution, that there had been a price put on. That you on. got money for what had happened to you. Yeah. Oh. So... So and yeah, it was it was a mix. I I felt some guilt about that, and not, in other words, that I was somehow prostituting myself by doing that. But at the other, on the other hand, it it also gave a worth to the childhood. I think I lost. So I mean, I, it was important to put a worth on that. But I've had this, still have that. There's a lot of stuff that's not finished. You know, there really is. So here, so what you're saying is, on the one hand, the settlement was very validating. It was an acknowledgement yep. that yep. what happened was wrong. Yeah. And that you lost something inexplicably precious. Very much so. And on the other hand, it felt like receiving money for for sexual acts. And it was so it was it was I met and yeah. I what you write about a little bit is you felt unable to spend it on yourself as a result. No, I never spent a penny of it on myself. It's such complicated money. Yeah, it is. And the and the truth is, you can't put a value on the childhood that you no. lost. No, you can't. There's no way to put it's a value priceless. on that. And what's stolen is, um, you know, the interesting thing is, I, I I called the book "No Telling Aloud: Keeping Secrets That Hurt" because, in some respects, the greater damage done to me was not telling, was was keeping the secret. That his insistence that this could never be told. And that's one reason why the suit was so helpful to me, because I told in legal, you know, in legal terms what happened and charged him with it. Um, and the book is the other half of it. The other half is, and even broadcasting like this, you know, is the first time that I've actually told aloud. You can't beat broadcasting for that. I mean... <laughs> that's about as told as you can get it. So, anyway, that's. I feel so honored to be part yeah. of that with you. Thank you so much. Mm. So, when you say, if anything, the greatest damage was in the not telling, what is the damage you're talking about? What do you mean? Well, uh, I kept the secret. I didn't get the therapy I should have gotten years and years and years and years ago. As a result, it affected my professional life, the way I dealt with people, the way I, um, it affected my marriage. Uh, I kept this, I basically lied to my wife for, for 40 years of our marriage. Um, and, and it's down deep, but it does still operate. Uh, and so it, 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 it has affected the way I, the way I think about men, I have a real hard time. I've never joined a men's group. I have no male friends. I mean, those things, there are, there are consequences to letting that secret lie there and do me damage from the inside out. You know, the, 
the the abuse was outside in, but but when it gets in there, then it begins to run things. It begins to govern some of your behavior. Uh, and the more I'm uncovering, the more I'm seeing the consequences of this. You also talk about the confusion of of your own body responding to him and and how difficult it was to tease out your own sense of responsibility when there was some pleasure for Absolutely. you. Absolutely. And that's the I, hardest thing of all. And yeah. it was the last thing I was able to write about. I had the worst time bringing myself to talk about the fact that I enjoyed this. You know, and and so what I had to do was to try to think through, well, okay, it's actually good that my body enjoyed this. That's the way my body was made. And so well, we were supposed to do that. But that's what sexual abuse does. It creates this incredible confusion where you want to deny the body by saying, well, no, this didn't didn't feel good. But that's not healthy. It, it, and so... Uh, the when way you I, say that's not healthy, what do you mean? Well, I, I think because your body is a good thing. I mean, your body is just part of yourself, and it's we are made to enjoy this stuff, and it's a good thing. But in denying it, by denying that I enjoyed it, then I was beginning to deny a whole big piece of myself. And so the way I d- have dealt with it is to tell about it, that's about the only way at this point that I know how to deal with it. So I decided I need to talk about it, um, and I need to thank my body for for being faithful and doing what it was supposed to do, even though it was in the middle of an inappropriate and traumatic moment. But um, the shame is still a struggle. Yeah. yeah. And so what, when you say that, what do you still feel shame for with this? Uh, I, I I can't really put a finger on it. The shame persists. I haven't been able to shake it altogether. Uh, I've intellectualized it. I've done all those things. Um, I, I think partly because in this culture, sexual activity... I, I grew up in a very puritanical background, and so sexual activity was pretty much, you know, on the top of the list of shameful behavior. So... Right, so talking about sex at all is already shameful. Yeah. 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 And fortunately, I had a wonderful wife. At age 14, I stopped all of this with him. At age 15, I met my wife in high school. And she was very, very beautiful. And she was very responsive to me. And I began to experience lust on my own part. See, I was the object of his lust, but he was never the object of my love. My, my love or my lust. He, my body was responding, but my body wasn't giving anything. And when I finally met my wife and I began to experience lust, uh, and I was excited by her body and excited by her beauty, then I think things began to click into place a lot. But um, What do you mean, click into place? Well, I began to realize that this is what it's supposed to be about. You know, I'm supposed to choose who I want to be with, and I'm supposed to give something to that person. And I'm supposed to... I mean, it became reciprocal. There had never been anything reciprocal. Um, and as I said in that little piece about the sexual enjoyment, 
I think sometimes the word abuse can be very helpful to us because it makes us feel like an object and we can complain about it and so forth. But, you know, there there's more to it than that. Uh, I was abused, but abu- using the word abuse tends to make us objects, and I don't think that's healthy. What word would you choose instead? Exploited. How is that less of an object? Uh, because I think I, I think that by being exploited, we are drawn into something. We are we become. I don't want to have been an object. I want to have been a, a living, breathing human who had feelings and all the way through. All the way through. I think I was the object of his abuse. I, I understand that. But I was a lot more than that, and that's what he tried to destroy, you know. So. Thank you, Carl, for Thank being you. my guest. Thank you for letting me tell my story. That was my 2013 interview with Episcopal priest Carl Russell, author of the book No Telling Aloud, Keeping Secrets That Hurt. And he spells aloud A-L-O-U-D. When it first aired, it was part of a series of interviews about childhood sexual abuse and the steps that people take to heal. If you want to hear more of the shows from that series or any of our other past shows about the subjects we hide, visit our website at safespaceradio.com. While you're there, please subscribe to our email list to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released. Also, leave us a comment. I love hearing from you. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show and to Jim Russell for being our editorial advisor.